0: You are brand new. We are in a series right now called One City at a Time. Come on, I was Say one city at a time. Last Sunday to do it. So there we go. Uh, If you haven't been here, it was birthed out of the book of Ephesians. Now, we start in Acts 19. It's the city of Ephesus, 200,000 plus people. Uh, Paul goes in there, grabs a handful of people uh, that really didn't know a lot about the word, but he teaches them the word, teaches them the gospel. They lift up the name of Jesus, and it disrupts a whole city. Ephesus is turned upside down. Hate is turned upside down and becomes love. Idol worship stops and people start worshiping Jesus. Bondage goes to freedom. It's an amazing story in Acts 19. If you weren't here, I recommend you watch the message. I feel like I did a great job that day, okay? Uh, I don't do great every time, but I was like, dang, that one was good. Uh, Keep it real. Can't lie in church. Then the following week, we opened it up in Ephesians 1, and we looked at basically... God's view of salvation. It's this amazing uh, theological symphony that Paul writes on how God chose us before the world was created, that we are now heirs, that we are rich. In Ephesians 2, it's our view of salvation, if you will, that we are dead, but now we're alive. First three chapters are the calling of the church, and the last three chapters are the conduct of the church. Ephesians kind of splits into two books. And so today we are finishing it off. Now again, like I said, the beginning of Ephesians was this song Run on sentences. I mean, Paul is soaring when he's writing these first two chapters. But Paul finishes in Ephesians 6, not with a song, but a battle cry. That the church would fight. The time of message is one city at a time, a church that takes a stand. Everybody say stand. Paul calls the church to stand for the ones that won't fight for themselves. To stand for the city, to stand for the region, to stand for the ones next to you. To stand for the church to say to the enemy, to the bully of all bullies, you have no place here. And he gives us this hope and this promise that we don't fight with our own power, but the power of God, the person, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit. I feel like somebody's getting directions to church. You hear? You have a raft. I don't know about you, but I, uh, I'm not a great fighter. I never have been a great fighter. Um, I've never really been in a fight. I'm a bigger dude, so I guess uh, nobody really wanted to pick on me, but if they would have, they would have demolished me. I'm just being honest. And I don't know if you've ever been this, but today my heart is that we will teach you who you're supposed to fight. That shows that in Ephesians. That shows, teach you how to fight and teach you what to fight for. Okay, it's funny at first, but now it's kind of mean, okay? Turn it off. All right, anyways. The Bible teaches us. It's not of that moment, like the person keeps calling you back. I call that the stalker call. The first one's okay. Second one, they're going to try a couple more times. You want to just put it under your chair and stomp on it a couple of times. Go buy you a new one. I've done it before. Be free. If it's you, be free. Enjoy service. Come on now. We got a lot of grace here. Um, Now, here's the deal Um, I think there's a lot of Christians that don't know how to fight. That when the enemy shoots doubt into your mind, you really don't know how to deal with it. When you get hurt by somebody, you really don't know how to uh, really get clean in your heart. You start to get angry at people. And the Bible shows how to fight, and how to fight well, and how to fight from victory and for victory. I don't know if you've ever been in an argument. I was in an argument uh, just two days ago, the day after Thanksgiving. I was in a heated conversation, if you will. I was battling somebody, debating with them, going back and forth. And have you ever, ever had those moments where they leave the house and then you're walking around talking about what you should have said? You know, I'm, so, I'm literally telling Rachel, I should have said this, I should have said that. I mean, this person touched my button. Carrie, who was playing bass, came over to my house and told me, asked me this simple question. Who do you blame in friends, Ross or Rachel? And I was like, it's Rachel, 100%. And she's like, well, Ross is my least favorite character. I was like, what? (laughs) And we get this epic battle going back and forth. And I'm telling her, hold on a second. Ross was her lobster. Loved her. And then she fell in love with her job more than Ross. And then she started hanging out with this guy at work. And Ross was jealous of it. And she said, relax, it's not a big deal. And so she said, let's take a break. And then he calls her house. And Mark answers the phone at her house. Who do you blame? Rachel. I was hot. Oh, you think the conversation ended. No, then I thought she was putting kindling on the fire. Who will who do you blame in the office? Pam or Jim? <laughs> Pam, of course! <laughs> so Carrie leaves. I'm walking around. I'm literally telling Rachel, oh I should have said this. Oh I should you know what, Jim? You know what? Jim had a hundred great moments. Oh Pam only had two. Oh I wish I would have said in season four when Ross did this. Rachel was always a little bit more self-centered than Ross. I was just going off. So then I videoed a conversation to Carrie and Shane. I was like, actually, here's some more thoughts. And I sent them some more thoughts through video on text. And I won the argument. At least I think I did. I want to catch this real quick. I believe the Lord wants us to live a life that when the enemy comes into our life, that we have no regrets. Regret is poison. He has grace for our mistakes. So when the enemy comes into our life, he wants to prepare you for battle. So when he brings temptation, you know exactly what to say. When he brings temptation, you can discern lies from truth. And The Bible shows that we uh, defend ourselves and defeat the enemy by binding the enemy. We have authority over the enemy. It's not some dualistic battle we have with the enemy. I mean, even God in Revelation, he sends an angel to go bind him. Angel, go get him. The enemy's supposed to live under your feet. And so I'm going to pray. And I'm going to hopefully get this done in 32 minutes. That's my goal. I'm looking at my message lately, been about 45 to 50 minutes. And it's, uh, it's just, just kind of long, especially when you're renting the thing. So 32 minutes sound good? If I go 40, is that okay? Now, before I pray, raise your hand if you blame Rachel. <laughs> my people. Start a small group. If you think it's Ross's fault, raise your hand. I forgive you. God's grace will unite us still. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Oh, Lord, may we take a stand against the enemy. Lord, may we fight for people that aren't fighting for themselves. May we fight for a region that isn't fighting for themselves. May we love people where they're at. Oh, may we love first and ask questions later. Father, we want to be a church that changes a region. And your word shows us that it's possible. May we hope and dream bigger than we ever have before in this season because your word shows that we should hope and dream more than we ever have. Father, we need you. We need you. And everybody said? If you have your Bible, turn to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. We're going to pick up in verse 10. It's going to be on the screen also. Here's what Paul says, the battle cry. Here's how he finishes. Finally, be strong in the Lord. I love how it starts. It's going to take a strong person to fight battles, but not your own strength. You find your strength in God. We live in a culture of self-esteem, finding yourself everything, but really the Bible always points yourself to God. That's where you find strength and fulfillment. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The devil has a strategy against this region. Different principalities are assigned to different regions. This is biblical. And basically, he has a scheme and a strategy uh, for us to be destroyed, and God has a promise for us to be restored and to live a fulfilled life. So it goes on to say, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the person at your work that's driving you nuts. Man, Jesus showed it best. When when we had our greatest mistake and we are crucifying Jesus on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. What he is doing at this moment is he is understanding that he is fighting for the captives. Luke 19.10, Jesus came to set the captives free. He is going to go defeat the captor. The people that are hurting you, hurting people hurt you. They are not the enemy. They are captors of a wound or of a mindset. They are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. It goes on to say in the Bible, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand. Everybody say stand. Stand, stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand. Come on, say stand one more time. Boom. Then again, oh my gosh, there's stand again. Stand firm. Say stand firm. stand firm. Okay, we're on the same page. Here we go. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can distinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, also known as the helmet of hope, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is a few years after Paul was in Ephesus. He's now in prison writing this letter. He understands that his days are short and this is his battle cry to the church when he leaves. Spurgeon says this in a message in 1909. I want you to catch this real quick. It's a message from this, uh, this this chapter. He says the Christian was evidently intended to be in motion. You are supposed to be an active Christian. Here we go. You are intended to be in motion. For here are shoes for his feet. Your head is provided with a helmet. For you are to be a thoughtful. We are supposed to be Christians that are looking for the wisdom of Christ. We are to be thoughtful. How do I reach a region? How do I love people? How do I share the gospel? We are to be thoughtful. He goes on to say, his heart is covered with a breastplate, for he is to be a man and woman of feeling. Oh, our heart should be covered and guarded because it affects everything. We should never stop having empathy for people. We should never be angry at people. Our heart should break for people. He goes on to say, his whole nature is protected by a shield, for he is called to have endurance and caution. Man, people, do you ever feel like life is just a war? It's a battle? You wonder why? Because it is. If you don't want to believe it, that's fine, but just live a few years and you'll realize it is a battle. You'll be battling your own thoughts. You'll be battling your spouse at times. You'll be battling your kids. You'll be battling your co-workers. You'll be battling the culture. You'll be battling all these kind of things because bottom line, because we're not heaven yet, there is this thing called sin still. There is this thing called darkness, and it is as war against our very souls. He goes on to say, "...and that he is active for certain, for a sword is provided for his hand." Come on, we're supposed to be offensive. We're not supposed to be scared and, and hunker down and be afraid of the enemy. We're supposed to go destroy the enemy. I love that. To use in sandals, which is feet are to be shod. What's the word shod mean? I don't know. I didn't google it. We good. Okay? Um, I wrote this down as a quote. If the enemy can't defeat you, he will try to disarm you or distract you. Some of you are really good with the sword. Man, you be spitting scripture like crazy, but you're not very thoughtful on when to use it. Some of you are really good with the sword but you don't come with the gospel of peace, you come with aggressiveness. So you're not wearing the peace. Man, some of you are really good with the sword, but you're not wearing the breastplate of righteousness, you don't have a lot of integrity. And if you don't have integrity, nobody wants to hear what you have to say about Jesus. Some of you can have the the sword, but man, if you don't have the shoes of readiness, and you're not ready to actually speak what God wants you to speak that moment, who cares what you know? Knowledge just puffs up. But man, love builds up. So, my prayer today is that we're going to look at three points real quick. Who do we fight? How do we fight? And then what do we fight for? I'll just, I'll be honest, I've been in a lot of churches, man. I think we're all good at fighting to an extent. I think everybody is good at fighting something. I've been at churches that were amazing at fighting all the wrong things. I've been at churches where they're fighting on what you should be able to wear for worship. You shouldn't wear this, you shouldn't wear that. I've been at churches where they fought about what you could listen to and not what you could listen to, what you could watch and what you shouldn't watch. I've been at churches where they said you couldn't even dance. I felt like I was in the movie Footloose. Let the kids dance. Started kicking their shoes off. I want to catch this real quick. Religious churches are always itching where nobody's scratching. We have a world that is dying because the enemy of darkness is going for their souls, and we're fighting over symptoms. And my prayer today is that we would be a church, that we would fight the enemy and his strategies and nothing else. So what does the Bible show and how we do that? Let's check it out. Ephesians 6 says, Finally be strong. We're going to read again this first part. This is who we fight. Finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, and against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Stop. C.S. Lewis, a very simple quote, he says, you can give the devil too little or too much attention. The enemy has a heyday with the suspect or the suspicious. The suspect, one that says, man, it's never the devil, just, just be practical. And so you never, ever actually think that there are any spiritual things going on. And so the enemy doesn't have to worry about you because you're never, ever wanting to bind them or resist them because you want to be so suspect that there's anything spiritual going on. The Bible is full that we fight against darkness. So if you don't agree with the word, then that's a different conversation. It's interesting, each Christian gravitates towards one side or the other and almost reads past those verses because they don't want to talk about it. And then there's the suspicious ones. Satan made me do it. I was, you know, I, I haven't paid my, my, my rent in four months. I literally read this in a book. This guy was hyper-spiritual, the hyper-spiritual book. And he was like, Satan got into my landlord and he came into my house and said, You gotta pay your bills or I'm kicking you out, because I have not paid my rent in four months. Oh, Satan did not get into your landlord. Use a bad steward, read your Bible, pay your bills. And there are people who literally want to blame everything on Satan, blame everything on the devil, but the Lord shows that we're supposed to steward our life. That would be the suspicious ones. You're scared of everything. You elevate fear. Oh, don't turn that TV channel on. We're letting Satan into the house. There's a demon behind every bush. And so instead of focusing on Jesus, you're focusing on fear. I don't want to have have that happen today. What I do want to have happen today is have you understand the, the, the posture you're supposed to walk in, the authority you're supposed to walk in, and really what the enemy's trying to do. You need to know your enemy. My favorite movies growing up was the bully that would take a stand against the enemy. As a young kid, Karate Kid. Anybody love Karate Kid? Cobra Kai. Sweep the leg, Johnny. These evil people. And then Daniel's son comes in and, right? That's as high as I can kick, by the way. I'm very, very sad. <laughs> karate Kid, I remember like watching it, and the kid going in the backyard and learning how to kick. And be like, I'm never going to be taken advantage of by a bully. And then I remember getting older, age nine, and watching this thing called Lion King. Simba and Nala go back and take a stand against Scar and say, Pride Rock is no longer yours. Another movie, these are all my favorite movies. I didn't realize they all have this theme. Braveheart, William Wallace against the evil king. Come on, William Wallace, come on now. He says, you know what? I don't want to live in comfort. I'd rather die fighting for freedom for my people. I want to set the captives free. And William Wallace dies to set his people free. It's an amazing story. Maximus Decimus Meridius. Come on. yeah takes a stand against the evil emperor and says, no longer will you oppress the people. (sighs) One more? Okay, cool. 300. (laughs) Not the movie. It's a terrible rated R movie. But 300, the history of 300. The Persian army, 100,000 plus, comes to enslave a nation. And 300 men and 5,000 Greeks on ships stand and say to the 100,000, we take a stand, you will not come to my city. It's an amazing picture. Rewind 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus came as a man to defeat the enemy. This is where I want you to get your authority real quick. And Jesus took a stand that you couldn't take. He took the keys back that you couldn't take. He took back the deficit that we created and created abundance. It says in John 10.10 10, that Jesus came to give an abundant life. And so he died on a cross, a sacrifice that we couldn't make because somebody had... God is not some licentious God who he winks at sin. He can't weaken sin. He won't do it. Somebody has to pay for sin. So Jesus paid for your sin and my sin. So we could all be justified. And so he pays for our sin, dies on the cross, forgives us, goes and dies for three days, conquers death, the biggest bully, and now gives us eternal life and conquers sin. And so now when he leaves, he passes the baton to us to say simply this. The war has been won, but there are still battles to fight. The war's over. There is eternal victory but there are still captives to be set free now from the the carnage of this war. And we live in the East Bay region, and I believe people need to be set free from the mindset of the enemy and the strategies of the enemy. So here's three schemes that I've noticed the enemy does. Very simply, I'm just going to go through three quick ones, and then we're going to look at the battle armor. First one is the enemy. Enemy wants to delay you. This is one of the schemes of the enemy, I think, in church. He wants to give you what I call someday disease. Well, someday I'll do this. Someday I'll be the person God called me. Someday, someday. But what happens with someday is it's not in the calendar. Monday through Sunday, you will not find someday. You won't find it. I want to share a little skit with you, if that's okay. All right, I'm going to be two different characters. Here I go. Okay, It's a young, uh, we'll go um, 13-year-old kid who's going to go on a missionary trip. And the youth pastor, uh, I'll play the youth pastor. He's 36, and he's 6'4", and he's really buff. Okay, cool. All right, I just want to give you the picture, all right? Why are you laughing at that? <laughs> cool, all right. Thankful for all of you. Okay, anyways, now the 13-year-old says yes to the, uh, going on the missionary trip, uh, super excited, goes home, and the Bible says that we fight against fiery darts of doubt, even the enemy will shoot towards us, that we fight against the strategy of the enemy, so the enemy's going to have a strategy to stop this young person from living out their life. So literally he starts hearing whisper thoughts. Let's just say it's a demonic um, uh, uh, force, if you want to use that term, or cosmic, whatever the Bible says. There's different versions that just say different ways. And whisper simply this, you're not good enough. You are not good enough to go on a missionary trip. And so the person comes back and their thoughts, are like, I'm like, I'm not good enough. I can't be used by God. I'm not, I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not some saint. So the kid comes back to the youth pastor, heard a lie from the enemy. And so goes to the youth pastor and says, I'm not good enough. And the youth pastor simply looks and says, no, but Jesus is good enough. None of us are good enough. It's not about you being good or me being good. It's about lifting up the name of Jesus. You, trust me, God can use you. He's looking for willing vessels. The 13-year-old goes, all right, I'm in, I'm in. Youth pastor says, yeah, you're a saint, not a sinner. Yeah, I'm a saint, I'm a saint. The 13-year-old's like, I don't even know what that means, but I'm a saint. Goes home, lays down again. And the enemy starts whispering all the sins that this 13-year-old struggles with and all the sins that this 13-year-old has done. Starts to feel, I'm just, I don't, I think this person understands. I am the worst of the worst. How can a sinner, oh, and then starts to whisper, you don't know the word good enough. You don't know the Bible. How could you go if you don't know the Bible front and back, all 66 books written by before you authors, you don't know it. And so the kid comes back to the pastor and says, I, I don't know the word. I've sent to him, I, I, I'm, I can't do it. Boom, pastor comes back, a truth over the lie. The Lord will give you the right words to speak. I'm going to train you up. I'm going to give you verses on this trip, and you're going to speak the words of God, and you're going to transform a region with me. 13-year-old goes, I'm in. I'm in. Comes back, last one. The demons come back to Satan, if you will, and say, we've tried everything. We try to attack the character. We try to do every lie to hold them in bondage, but a truth keeps on being spoken over this lie. And so this 13-year-old is still going to go, transform a region. So Satan rolls up his sleeves and says, I got this one. I'm going to bring out the big guns on this one. And comes to this young, uh, this young boy at 13 and simply whispers this. You're 13, you have plenty of time. Just go another time. The 13-year-old says, i got plenty of time. i got other things i got to get done this summer. And simply shoots an email off to the youth pastor. I've got plenty of time. I'll, I'll go next year. And I want you to hear this real quick. There is nowhere in Scripture that says that you have plenty of time. The enemy is trying to delay you from living out your promise year after year. He's been trying to delay the things that you dream for, saying, well, next year I'll start living the way I'm supposed to live. Next year I'll do this. And the problem is the Bible actually shows that your life is but a breath, but a fleeting shadow, that we are supposed to live with a sense of urgency, that today, oh, I pray it. I pray in the name of Jesus that you would go home today and you'd be in your home and say, today I take a stand. Today, I'm going to live for Jesus. Today, I'm going to love the way God always called me to love. Today, the things that I struggle with, I'm throwing them in my my rearview mirror. I'm going to live for my future. I'm not going to be a prisoner of my past because the enemy, he loves to discourage you. The second one, he tries to discourage by making you a prisoner of your past and make you think about all the things you have done, or he makes you fear your future. And so your present is always stolen. But you have to take a stand. And you have to say to the enemy, today maybe all I have left, I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. Today when you get up, you put on the full armor of God and say, I'm living for Jesus. I'm going to love people like I've never loved. I'm going to forgive for the first time maybe. That sin that I always struggle with, I'm going to finally tell one person and know that the word shows me that this doesn't define my life, that I'm going to bring it to light and it's going to be defeated because God is going to help me overcome these things that are holding me back. Man, there's so many Christians that have this promise on their life. And year after year, they just put it in this box, and God is simply saying to you through his word over and over again, live out your promise. Ephesians 6 is this sense of urgency. You are now an heir to the throne. Riches are said five plus times. Fullness of God, your life is supposed to overflow five plus times. It's over and over again. So the first scheme of the enemy is going to try to delay you. Second scheme of the enemy is going to try to discourage you. Discourage you with things that you have done and have you fearful of the things that you're about to uh, to try to accomplish. Fear paralyzes, faith mobilizes us. Third one is very, very simple, but I think it's one that I've never seen, and after I look throughout the Word, there's so many scriptures on this, and it's the rhythm of poverty mindset. The enemy wants to create a deficit in your soul and your mind, the appearance of a deficit. The Bible says that he's the father of lies. Now, you've got to think about what a deficit means. What does a poverty deficit mean? What does a deficit, what does a deficit do to people? Let's just look at just the simplicity of what a deficit really is. So uh, the movie Unbroken came out a handful of years ago during Christmas. True story about some prisoners of war. They were on a raft. They had one little bar, three people, not enough food for all three of them. It's amazing what people do when there's not enough to go around. They start to look out for themselves. They start to get vicious, and they're even willing to hurt somebody else to save their own life. And so one person on that raft ate everything. It uh, uh, It was a disgusting moment in the movie. I grew up with scarcity. I grew up with a deficit in my home. We had a deficit of finances. So at the dinner table, six people, four kids, mom and dad, there was a deficit at the table. So if you didn't eat fast, you didn't eat, okay? And so there would be this, like, argument, and always fighting at the table. Tyler had this much. Ah, no, Lindsay did this. And we were always fighting at the table because there was always a deficit of goods in our home. There was a deficit of love in our home. There was such a deficit of love that my dad who was you know, hurting people hurt people that our house was just full of yelling and cussing and verbal abuse. And so my home became the last place I wanted to be. A deficit of love creates anger because when somebody hurts you, they wound you and then you basically want to wound them back. And then last but not least, we had a deficit of forgiveness. Man, we, I lived in a home, man. Offenses, they would hold on to it. We would remember it. I mean, when Rachel and I got married, I'm not trying to put my sister on blast, but I'm trying to have you unpack kind of just the dynamic of our home. Rachel and I are now 29, 30 years old at this moment. My sister comes up. She's 34 at this moment, and she goes to Tyler to tell you what he did when he was 14 years old at the dinner table. And I was like, what? You've you got to move on. But when you live in a deficit and you're never forgiven, you're still living at that same mountain at age 14. And my sister, I still pray that we would have reconciliation. I pray that she would release, that she would find the Lord. She's the last one in our family to to not say yes to the Lord. But man, when you have a deficit in a region, what happens? What happens when you have a deficit? Think about this, Genesis 3. Let's look at how it happened. Adam and Eve are in the garden. There's an abundance of purpose. There's an abundance of relationship with the Lord. There's an abundance of food. They sin. The cursing is a lack of everything. You're going to have to work your face off for food now. Now there's a separation between you and and God. There is now relational animosity, even between the spouses. There is a lack everywhere. So there is this deficit. Jesus comes in John 10. 10. What does he come to do? To stop the deficit and bring what? An abundance. Let's unpack this real quick. I've always believed this. The Lord gave me this word. I've shared it with so many people. So if you are one of those people uh, I've shared it with, I think I've shared it from the, the platform a couple times that we are going to be the rich church. And when I was preparing this message, I was asking the Lord, "Lord, what starts most fights? What starts most arguments and quarrels in a region? And he opened my eyes to the deficit, a poverty mindset. And I started literally praying. I was like, Lord, I get it why you said we're going to be the rich church. And I'm not talking about finances. Let's not think that small. We're not talking finances. Will we have provision? Yes. But I'm talking we're going to be rich in purpose, rich in love, rich in grace, rich in mercy. We're going to be rich in relationship. How do you transform a climate of a region? Man, become generous with a region. Picture a home. I'm going to give you one more illustration. I want you to catch this real quick. Picture a home, 10 people. I come in, I give seven of the 10. You're one of those 10. I give seven of the 10 brand new Teslas. So if you're one of those seven, you'd be like, would you be happy I gave you a Tesla? If you don't like them, go sell it. All good. You can do whatever you want with it, but I gave you a Tesla. You're welcome. Okay. Um, and so you, I gave you a Tesla. The other three that didn't have, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I only had seven Teslas, and there's ten of you. The other three, would they be angry and hurt? Yes. Be frustrated. Well, what happens in a region when there is a deficit of love, a deficit of the gospel, is they start to fight each other for whatever the scraps are left over. A poverty mindset will create this thing that, okay, i got to blame somebody. I've got to fight somebody because i got to get mine. Now, imagine this. In this region, if we understood the goal that God has for us is the way we fight this, uh, the, the scheme of deficit in the enemy, is that we're supposed to get the gospel to every single person. Oprah, fantastic show back in the day. If you didn't like it, I actually did. I would come home from school and watch it. She'd you know, interview Tom Cruise. I'm like, this is fascinating. But she had this moment in the show that was one of my favorite parts. The very end, she would look at the crowd and say, Look under your seat. And they'd be like, what's going on? You get a whale, you get a whale, you get a whale. You get a car, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, everybody gets a car. It was just, and no, nobody left mad. Nobody. What happens a lot in the church is that we have religious people that think we're still working from a deficit even with grace. I haven't really been saved, i got to work harder. No, there is this thing called grace. You have been Pay riches, abundance, fullness. Oh, I pray that you would see that. You are not working from a deficit. You are working from abundance. Start giving love to people. Ephesians 3 says, make an allowance for other people's faults. When I leave the house, I literally picture this. Rachel and I talk about this at times. When I leave the house, Lord, give me some grace. I'm going to give it out to some people today because there are some crazy people out there. It says, make an allowance for people's faults. Live a life worthy of your calling. Lord, give me some love today because people are gonna those unlovable ones, that's who need the love from me. I'm I'm the rich kid. I'm gonna bring love wherever I go. I'm gonna bring grace wherever I go. I have to make an allowance for other people's faults. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? Amen? Let's keep going. So how do we fight? How do we fight? We're gonna go through this quick. I'm gonna make this seven minutes and under. You ready? Here we go. How do we fight? People laughed. Yeah, right, Tyler. Um, <laughs> Ephesians 6, stand firm, then with the belt of truth, buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flame and arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Stop. First thing is how we fight. We don't need hundreds of generals. We need hundreds of foot soldiers. The church has different mentalities. And what I want you to catch in this scripture, what Paul is showing is he's talking to the church. And the church can have three different, I, I feel like, ways that they think they're supposed to fight. The superhero mentality. They believe that the pastor is the one that fights the best. And so if I need prayer, text the pastor. If, I need, uh, if we're going to have an event, make sure the pastor's there because the superhero has to be there. If the superhero's not there, then we're not actually having the event. And so that what happens is the pastor becomes almost this superman that everybody looks to. Man, I'm failing you if you think I need to pray for you. I am a servant. I am no superman. Trust me. Ask my wife. Kind of hurt to say that, but it's true. <laughs> Trying to be a great husband. We are not going to have a Superman culture here. We're not going to have a culture where we're looking towards one person to pray, one person to do this. No, we are going to build the kingdom together. Not the talents of a few, but the sacrifices of many. So we're not going to have a church that fights with the superhero mentality. We're not going to have a church that fights with the Navy SEAL mentality. A lot of churches have this Navy SEAL. 20% of most churches uh, do 80% of the work. So people start to look at other people, well, this is just not, I'm just not for me. And the two reasons why people don't become uh, active and become foot soldiers and servants in the kingdom is two reasons. One is, they don't feel like they're good enough. I'm not good enough to actually help. I love what D.L. Moody says, that if it was up to mankind, David would never have been chosen, but God chose David. God chose you. How do I know he chose you? Here's how I know he chose you. You are here today in the house of God. You are chosen. If you are a teacher in a school, God put you in that school. He chose you to be the one that would fight for that school. If you're in a corporate job, God chose you in that corporate job to fight for the the people in in your circle. If God sent you in a city, in a region, he chose you to fight for the region. You have been chosen. You are equipped. Second reason why people uh, don't become a part of the church and they're not the 20%, and I want a church to have everybody serve all in, is that they think they're actually too good. Some people think they're not good enough. Other people think they're too good. And what I mean by too good is they go, man, my schedule is just, I'm just too busy. Because the things I do are so important, I just can't budget time for Jesus or the things of God. I know his bride, he loved it, he died for it, but I don't have time for it, I'm sorry. If you knew what my life looked like and the things that we have to do as a family, they're really important. So someday, man, that is not the heart of the Lord. You have been tricked by the enemy. You are not too good to pick up a stage. You are not too good to load the truck. I am not too good to set up and tear down. None of us are too good to serve the church. So what's the last one? Foot soldiers. Man, we're not trying to raise up 12,000 generals. We're trying to raise up 12,000 servants, soldiers that say, yes, God, you are the king, this is your kingdom. One king, no other king. So how do we dress for success in this battle? This is going to be quick. Here we go. First one, it says, put on the belt of truth, the belt of truth. I think one of the biggest things that happen in the world and in our lives is that lies are the beginning of bondage. When you get sold a lie, it literally starts the process. Let's just use simple things. Tyler, you're an idiot. Tyler, she break up with you yet? My wife and I were talking about lies that we bought t- into from our childhood recently. And one of hers is she didn't want, uh, I actually didn't ask my wife's permission. Never mind, I'll just share mine. <laughs> my chip said, not allowed. <laughs> Don't share your wife's journey. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I'll just share mine, okay? That was close. <laughs> I didn't know. I was going to need a lot of grace and forgiveness after that one. (laughs) Let's just talk about me since I'm talking. So Rachel shared hers, very powerful, very profound, okay? And then I started looking. I was like, what was mine? And the biggest lie that I bought into is simply this, and I say it all the time. I've always been afraid of this, that God would give up on me. That I would do too much and he would be done with me. That he would be annoyed of me or he would be, Impatient with me because I've sinned too much, or that I can't conquer this sin, or I thought I conquered it, and I still struggle with this, I still struggle with jealousy or unforgiveness, or whatever it is, and I feel like God's just gonna give up on me. And Rachel asked me, Why, why do you feel that way? And at the moment, I, I couldn't have told you why. But man, you go to the Lord and ask the Lord why. Oh man, he'll, he'll touch on a wound you didn't know you had. My whole childhood, my dad would always say things to me every time I had a girlfriend, she'd dump you yet? Why she with you? It would create a mindset in my mind that I'll never be good enough for any person. Of course not my God. And then you find the word of God and you read Ephesians 6 and you put on the belt of truth and it's this love letter to his sons and daughters that he sees you perfect and blameless that he wants to bless you, that in Christ, oh, that you are perfect, that if you, would see your, that you didn't sneak your way in, that God's not ready to kick you out, but he's actually trying to get you in closer and closer and not push you out farther and farther, that he is trying to promote you from season to season, not demote you from season to season. These are things that the word of God is transforming in my life at this moment in my journey. If you get in the belt of truth, you start to have truth of the word of God actually navigate your life. You pray different, you love different. Your motives are different. Second thing to to fight the battle is you need the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. I believe one of the biggest things in our our culture is there's a lack of character. People are looking for circumstance success instead of character success. They just want to win right now. They think that you've bought the, the lie from the enemy that manipulation and fighting for your own and winning one little thing is good enough for your life. You're fighting for scraps, but if you live a life of character and integrity, watch what kind of doors open your life. Promotion does not come from somebody else. It does not come from this world. It comes from the Lord. You start having character, watch what God does. It shows in Psalms that literally Joseph, that God was testing his character. And circumstance after circumstance, Joseph said, I'm a man of character. I will not say yes to this world. And character win after character win. God opened the door to all of Egypt and said, you, I want you to lead. I believe that people in this room right now, if you want the things that are in your heart, don't start striving, start surrendering to God. Start becoming a person of character and integrity. Start becoming a person of empathy. Man, this thing, the breastplate of righteousness, the Lord wants to have this thing be soft as all get out, all moldable and shapeable. He wants it to break for what breaks his. He wants it to break for the region that you live in. It's amazing to me that we live in such a stone-cold culture now. There's no empathy anymore. There's There's just fighting. I literally turned the news on for five minutes yesterday, five minutes before my football game. And it was literally, there was a mall shooting in New Jersey. There was a stabbing in Tacoma. There was another fight in this place. I mean, I was like, what? when did this happen? When did Black Friday turn into this thing where it's basically gang fights, gangs of New York all over the U.S.? Because there's no empathy anymore. We have to be the soft ones. We have to be the loving ones. We have to be the ones with character. These are quick. I hope you're uh, receiving it. Here we go. Number three, shoes of peace. Shoes of peace. It says this, and with uh, uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And with your feet fitted with readiness that you're, the gospel that comes from peace. Now we think of wars with tanks, uh, fighter jets, all those kind of things, but when Paul's writing this, the Roman soldiers, one of the most important, vital pieces of armor were the shoes. was the shoes. Because the army, if you didn't have good shoes, you would not get where you're supposed to get. Your feet are such an important part of it. In 1950-51, in the Korean conflict, when the American soldiers were over there, they had the wrong shoes, and they literally froze their feet and got frostbite. It wasn't the enemy's shots. It was they had the wrong shoes on. And a lot of you, the enemy isn't even destroying you. It's because you haven't forgiven. You have pebbles in your shoe of unforgiveness. I love this. Uh, So many athletes have said, I can't give it credit to one, but it isn't the mountains ahead to climb that will wear you out. It's the pebble in your shoe. Now, the, the, the foot of readiness, Timothy Keller in 1992 preaches a whole message just on this subject, the feet of readiness. He goes on to unpack every Greek word, and basically what he shows, it's a spiritual joy. What Paul is saying is there's this athleticism when you put on the spiritual shoes of the gospel, the gospel of peace, the gospel of salvation. When you put them, literally, the gospel of readiness on your shoes, he said it's like an athlete that you'd be impressed with. Michael Jordan was the athlete that impressed me. He could jump from the free throw line and dunk. I was like, what kind of man defies gravity like that? They literally named him Air Jordan. I would practice like this outside. Uh, by my tongue a few times because I'm not Jordan, okay? But I was inspired by his athleticism. It was a gift from God that he literally was that athletic. Well, God wants to give the church a gift, and it's the gospel of readiness, that when you put the gospel on, here's what happens. People will see a spiritual fitness in your life that they've never seen before. And what the gospel shows, the gospel does the first thing, is this, it changes your identity. And so when you live throughout the world, your identity is no longer if you're rich or if you're the boss or if you're husband or father or mother or rejected, no, those things don't affect you anymore. When somebody attacks your identity, they take a jab at you, you lay pop back up because you have the gospel and I'm a son more than anything else. Being a pastor does not define my life. Me being a son of the living God defines my life. These are things that will make you spiritually quick, that will change the world and make people say, man, why is that person so confident in themselves? Why is it that things don't rattle them the way it rattles me? Because you're an athlete for the kingdom. Another one it shows, it shows that when you have the gospel, what is the gospel? You're a minister of reconciliation. That when somebody hurts you, when somebody wounds you, what do you do? Man, you, I forgive you. Love you. I forgive you, but that one really hurt, you know? I got I to gotta get some space from you, but I still love you. I'm going to pray for you for a distance because you was crazy. i want to catch this real quick. If you want to be an ambassador for the kingdom, man, one of the biggest things I see in the church is we just stink at forgiving. We're terrible at it. As it, Oh, man. The enemy will haunt you for things that Jesus has forgiven you about. I believe people are terrible at forgiving because they haven't received forgiveness from the Lord yet. They haven't been set free. They're haunted by their, their, their mistakes. But Jesus doesn't want you haunted by your mistakes. He got rid of your mistakes as far as he's from the West. The gospel, last one, is it gives you your eternal promise that the temporary does not affect you because you don't live for the temporary, you live for the eternal. So many people are worried about their tomorrow. Man, when you get news about tomorrow, I'm not stressed out. I wish I could say I work perfectly in this. I don't. I, I, I've struggled with, with trusting the Lord in this season in my life. We're getting moved out of this, and I don't know where we're going to go. I've never been stressed the way I've been stressed. and Man, I found out that I, I can't just say, I trust you, Lord. i got to get my face. And i got to hang out in the throne room and say, God, I believe you. I trust you'll provide for this church financially. I trust that you'll provide a home for this church. You provided for six weeks at the garden at Heather Farm over there, and it's perfect. You provided here for the last seven months, and it's been perfect. And you're going to provide again because, God, that's what you do. You provide. I will not be sh- shaked or shook, whatever you want to call. I'm not sure, shook by the temporary. Shaken? I was wrong on both. Dang. All right. Good talk. Thanks, sweetie. I almost shared all your stories. Um, Last last three. I'm just going to go real quick. The shield of faith. The shield of faith. Man, the enemy is going to shoot arrows at you. Oh, he's going to shoot arrows. Fear paralyzes. Do not fear is the most repeated phrase in the Bible. Do not fear is the most repeated phrase in the Bible. Nothing paralyzes our lives more than the attitude that things can never change. We need to remind ourselves that God can change things. Outlook determines outcome. If we see only the problems, we will be defeated. But we see the possibilities in the problems, we can have victory, Warren Wiersbe. I believe that you have to have a different outlook because of the faith of God. Hebrews 11, go home and read it. Get inspired. It was by faith, it was by faith. Fear is your enemy. Faith is one of the greatest weapons that you can have. It's a shield. It's interesting, it's a shield because you already have the promises. So all you gotta do is walk with the promises and not let the lies stop you from walking to your promises. This shield is not some little circle. It was literally six to eight feet long. It was about three to four feet wide. It wanted to cover your whole body. But the problem is, one of the most important parts of your body, which I'm gonna finish with, was the helmet. Oh, the helmet of hope, the helmet of salvation. If the enemy cannot destroy your soul, he's going to try to destroy your mind. He's going to try to affect your thought processes. That's why sanctification is so important. When you say yes to Jesus, Jesus is just getting started. Sanctification is vivification, renewing of your mind, and mortification, the killing of your flesh. You have a thought process, never works out. Da, da, da. You're just you, even, Maybe you're the person, you have the mindset, you don't put the helmet of hope on, you put the helmet of rejection on. Once these people know me, they're just going to reject me. Once the first time somebody rejects me, I'm gone because that's what happens. People reject me. And Lord's like, take that off and put on the helmet of hope. When there was no way, I made a way. You will be accepted because I accepted you. And not only that, you suffer from rejection. I'm calling you now to be the one that accepts everybody. Don't wait to be rejected. Start accepting. Walk into the place and not be the person, oh, are they gonna be me? No, be the one that is kind. Own the responsibility, put on a new helmet. Look at the possibility and the problems. We have problems at Mission Church. We are not perfect, it's messy, it's called people. When you see the problems, change your mindset. and Say, man, I don't see enough people serving. Well, guess what, I'm gonna serve. Man, not enough people said yes, hi to me. I'm gonna say hi to people. Man, nobody shook my hand when I sat down. I'm gonna go shake hands because I see the possibility and the problems. And last but not least, it's very simple. He gave us the word of God, the sword of the spirit. We are not some scared Christian. We walk and we talk the way Jesus called us to walk and talk. And we walk into places. We bring the power of God, the truth of God, and it literally slays the enemy. When you speak the name of Jesus, when you live, or the word of God, and you speak the word of God, oh, look at Matthew 4. Jesus is being attacked by the enemy. He's literally saying, if you're the son of God, do this. And every time, how does he fight? He fights back with the word of God. You have to start to get to know your word. Just one verse a week, memorize it and think about it all the time and see what happens to your mind, to your heart, to your soul, and to your day. Find a promise, meditate on it, memorize it, get it in here. I have hidden your word in my heart, O God, that I may not sin against you. Will you bow your heads?